Thank you for tuning into sermons from Liberty Baptist Church in Newport Beach, California. Our goal is to help you know God more and take the next step in your spiritual journey, no matter where you're at. If you have questions about God or about Liberty, you can connect with us at libertybaptistchurch.org. We pray that the Lord will use this message to be a help and encouragement in your life. And uh, trust that this morning God will stir our hearts. I, I want to start the message with just a couple of thoughts. You can go to 2 Corinthians if you don't mind. 2 Corinthians chapter number 2 is where we'll be in a moment. 2 Corinthians chapter number 2. But I don't know if you've ever come into your life uh, to um, recognize that some verses of Scripture, I don't know if this has happened to you, but you come to a verse of Scripture and you read it and it sounds too good to be true. You ever done that? Well, I want to show you some verses of Scripture that seem too good to be true. But as we go into this, I think we'll see that they're not too good to be true. But I want us to start with that thought. Because I find that one of the reasons I want to deal, that, deal with this this morning is because there, there's no doubt the world in which we live, a lot of people struggle with their identity. Have you ever heard the word identity? It's one of those words we use a lot today. There's a lot of misuse of the word, and then there's a lot of proper use of the word. But the Bible deals with this issue of identity. But it really is important for us to understand that God has some things, if we get a hold of, can really heal us and help us. Now, one thing I've noticed is I've worked with teenagers for 39 years. There are a lot of teenagers who have a lot of hurt. And there are a lot of teenagers who've been through some pretty rough things. And many times young people, and even carries into adulthood, carry baggage into their adulthood. And as a result, they do not have a proper biblical view of who they are. And in one of the songs we sang actually talked about that. Do we really believe who the Bible says we are really is who we are? Because many times we don't. Can I say this? We are far more defined by our failure than we are from what the Bible says who we are. And we're often not just defined by our failure, we're also defined by failure that has been, how do we say this, we're innocent bystanders to. Undoubtedly in a room this size, some folks have have had things done to them where they've been perhaps abused or molested, and and, uh, they become, if they're not careful, defined by someone else's sin. Or they come from a home where there's problems or there's dysfunction and there's issues that occur. And and young people can become far more defined by other people's sin than than who they are in Jesus Christ. And so these things are a very real thing in the culture in which we live. And and I certainly believe that one of the things that started to unravel our culture, and I certainly don't have time to fully develop it, I believe is the uh, sexual revolution. Uh, They called it the free love of the 60s. Some of you are old enough to remember that. I tell young people everywhere I go, it wasn't free and it wasn't love. Sometimes I call it the expensive lust of the 60s. Do you know the problem with lust? Lust is never about anybody else. It's all about us. And the sexual revolution, could I say this, accelerated selfishness. See, the Bible says every man is tempted when he has drawn away, anybody know, of his own lusts. See, so every sin we commit is because we're selfish. And that's why we commit the sin. If we weren't selfish, we wouldn't commit the sin. But selfishness, obviously, is what our culture is grappling with. And so the sexual revolution, what that did was it gave people license to be selfish. And culture was okay with it. Uh, To give you a little bit of idea, there's two shipping accidents that occurred in the 1900s that define and I think help us really understand the effect of the sexual revolution. One was the Great Titanic. 
When the great Titanic went down, do you know what the watchword was on the, on the deck? Everybody knows the watchword. Everybody knows this was said more than anything else on the deck of the Titanic. And I'm, I'm going to let you finish the phrase. Women and children, could you tell me the next word? See, you did know it. Now, do you know there were men that walked up to lifeboats, put their children and their wife on a lifeboat, kissed them goodbye, turned away, and realized they'd never see them in this life again? You say, preacher, why did those men do it? Because that's what men did. <laughs> men were unselfish. They gave their life. That was what you're supposed to do. Give your life for women and give your life for children. Did you know there were 1,500 people who died in the great Titanic shipping accident and 1,300 of them were women? That's stunning. In the 1990s, another ship went down. There were 800 passengers that were lost. Almost all of them were women. So what happened in between those two shipping accidents? And the answer is the sexual revolution. So when people look at pornography, they do it because they're selfish. When a wife or a husband cheats on their spouse, they do it because they're selfish. We live in a culture where this no longer is, nobody looks with askance on it. We live in a culture where that's just okay. And so what does selfishness do? May I say this? Selfishness always hurts innocent bystanders. Some of you grew up in a home where mom and dad were really selfish. And you've come to realize there was some negative impact as a result of that. And so you understand the culture in which we live has brought people. There are a lot of people, just like my, my daughter talked to a young lady just a couple nights ago. Who came to one of our, she said, I'm an atheist. And basically what she said to my daughter, and this is what gave my daughter an opportunity to witness to her, she says, I'm empty. Well, I'll tell you, we live in a culture where there's a lot of people who are empty. So I want us to look at some verses of Scripture that seem too good to be true, particularly in our broken culture. And you as a Christian may be sitting here this morning and, well, well, you know, I've just kind of figured I got issues in my life and that's the way it's going to be till I go to heaven. Well, I got good news for you. It doesn't have to be that way. <laughs> because uh, there's some verses of Scripture here, like I said, that are going to help us really truly understand our identity. So just hang with me for a moment. I'm going to try to get the cookies down as low as I can. But I do believe this is a very important truth for God's people today. So let's look at 2 Corinthians chapter number 2. Look at verse number 14, and here's what it says. Now, thanks be unto God, here it is, which always, well, that's a big word, Causes us to triumph in Christ. Now I'm going to ask you a question. How many of you from the moment you got saved to now, every time you've been tempted you've had victory. Every single trial you've been through you came through it victoriously without any failure. Um, would you raise your hand? I'm not raising mine. So what does that first mean? God always causes us to triumph. Okay, go over to chapter 5, chapter 5, a little more familiar verse of Scripture. Look at verse number 17, a verse that some of you have memorized. Therefore, if any man be, here's our key words, you probably figured that from the first verse, in Christ he is a new creature. Old things are passed away, behold, all things are become new. So how many of you, the moment you got saved to now, the old life is completely gone? Used to lie, don't lie anymore. Used to struggle with lust, don't struggle with lust anymore. Used to have an anger problem, don't have an anger problem anymore. Used to worry, nah, don't worry anymore. How many of you, from the moment you got saved to now, everything old is completely gone and everything's become new in the sense that you don't struggle with the old life anymore? Would you raise your hand? I'm not raising mine. 
So what does that verse mean? Does it kind of sound too good to be true? It's like, whoa, wow, that'd be great, wouldn't it? Old things pass away, all things become new. Okay, let's look at verse 21. For he hath made him, that's of course God hath made him, Jesus, to be sin for us, who knew no sin, here it is, that we might be made the righteousness of God in him. So how many of you from the moment you got saved to now have perfectly been righteous in your Christian life? Every decision you made was the righteous decision. Would you raise your hand? Well, I'm not raising mine. Why is it that the Scripture seems to be above our experience? Now here's the point. These verses are not too good to be true. They are true. So you say, well, preacher, what gives? Well, here's what gives. In just a moment we're going to walk through this theologically, try to get it as, as low as I can. But here's what gives. We are far more influenced by our, our failures of the past than we are by these verses of Scripture. So we're seeing, say, well, how can that be true in my life? I got an anger problem. I'm an angry person. Or I just, man, I'm a lustful person. Man, I got exposed to pornography young. And I just struggle with it all the time. And I'm mean, you live in Southern California and, and, you know, whatever. And I just, you know, I'm a lustful person. Or, yeah, just a worry wart. That's just the way it is. And we become far more defined by our failure than we do by these verses. Or we become defined by people's sin against us. Say, well, I come from such such a home, and that's just the way it is. And yeah, I just struggle with anxiety or insecurity, or yeah, I feel worthless all the time because of uh, some of the circumstances I went through, I was taken advantage of, etc. And we become defined by those. So, what is the Bible trying to tell us? It's trying to tell us this, that this is our true identity. <laughs> You say, well, how? Okay, well, let's just stop for a moment and talk. Uh, in theology, we call this anthropology, okay? That's just simply how, how man operates. Okay, before you and I got saved, our spirit was dead. It was dead to God. Now, it wasn't non-existent. Do unsaved people connect with the spirit world? And the answer is, yeah, the dark spirit world. So, the spirit was not non-existent. It was dead. And the word dead has the idea in theology of separation from. Okay, so when you, before you and I got saved, our spirit was dead to God. You had no way to connect with God. Now, you could connect with the spirit world. And, and of course, we know that all across the world there are pagan religions that that's exactly what it is. It's connecting with the spirit world. They live in fear. And it's a, a quite a, a phenomenal thing when you talk to missionaries from those kind of mission fields. So the spirit is not non-existent. It's there, but it only can connect with the dark side of the spirit world. It cannot connect with God because it's dead. But when you hear the gospel, the great news that Jesus Christ came to planet Earth, He died on a cross. You said that blood we sang about a moment ago. And... and um, he was buried and he rose again the third day. And, uh, and if you trust him, he'll save you. Okay, that's the gospel. The Holy Spirit takes the gospel and you know what he does? He convicts us of sin, righteousness, and judgment. You know, one thing I've learned in almost 40 years of preaching to teenagers is this. The power is in the gospel. The gospel just needs to be given. Hey, I, I, I'll, I'll tell you this. The gospel is not even fair. The gospel is like fishing with grenades. <laughs> You know, throw a grenade in, then just clean up all the dead fish on the top of the water. Yeah, that's how powerful the gospel is. It's not even fair. Hallelujah for the power of the gospel. And I'm talking to some of you, it's highly unlikely that you should be in church Sunday morning uh, because somewhere along the line, man, you were heading in a totally different direction and the gospel uh, got detonated in your life. 
And you're sitting here this morning born again. And so you hear the gospel and you believe on the Lord Jesus Christ and he saves you. Here's the word. He regenerates you. You got born. Don't miss this again. And I don't want you to miss this. When you got born again, you got regened. See, that's what regenerated means. You got a whole new set of genes. <laughs> and when you got regenerated, the Holy Spirit came into that dead spirit. He made it alive. You were born again. There was, you were born from above. And that part of you, now my friend, is where the Holy Spirit lives. Now, I want to ask you a question. What's the problem then? If we've been regenerated and the Holy Spirit lives in us, I mean, God lives in us. Why do we fail so much? Well, the Bible does say the flesh lusteth against anybody know the spirit and the spirit against the flesh and these are contrary one to the other so that you cannot do the things that you would you know what that says if you were to lay it out in the, in the original language it means this there's the great probability and possibility that because we still have our flesh we're not going to do everything God wants us to do have you found that true in your own life yeah, we know that flesh spirit battle man we get that and here's our problem we become far more defined by our flesh we think the flesh is who we are. Now, I got a question for you. A million years from now, where is your flesh going to be? And the answer is, not with you. Do you know why you don't sin in heaven? Because the real you is all that's there. Your flesh isn't there anymore. Can I say that that regenerated part of you, don't miss this, can't sin. 1 John chapter 3 tells us that whatsoever is born of God cannot or doth not commit sin. That part of you that where Jesus is doesn't sin. You know why? Because Jesus doesn't sin. Now you have to understand that is who you are. A million years from now, that's who you'll be. But the truth is, that's who you are right now. The difference is only that your flesh is still there. But that's not who you are. The flesh does not define you. It is not your identity. When God looks at you, he sees the regened part of you. Now, I don't know about you. That's exciting. So every person in this room has the possibility of living a life of victory. Why? Because Jesus is always victorious. And Jesus is always righteous. And in Jesus, everything old is gone. Everything new is come. That regenerated part of you, everything old is gone. And you are a new creation. That's who you are. And friend, I hope you'll walk out of here, and I hope you'll get a hold of the fact that, hallelujah, that's who I am. See, here's, here's often how we view the Christian life. And sometimes, I'll be honest with you, it comes because of poor preaching. You know, I grew up in a preacher's home. My dad, I think, did a very good job. I just, it was over my head when I was younger. But I began to realize, you know, I think dad taught all this stuff, and it laid a foundation for me. But in other places of hearing preaching, sometimes I got the idea that the Christian life was do and you'll be. Well, if I can just do this, 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 I'll be a good Christian. You say, preacher, isn't that, isn't that what the Bible teaches? No, the Bible doesn't preach do and you'll be. It teaches because you are do. <laughs> so you've got to flip it. See, when you're trying to do to be, you are literally into work sanctification. And you know the problem with work sanctification? Doesn't work. <laughs> 
But when you're doing it because that's who I am, I'm literally living out the life of Jesus Christ who lives in me. Changes everything. Every person in this room hooked on pornography, that if you're saved, that's not who you are. You are not in bondage to pornography. The real you is not. Oh, your flesh is. I'm not minimizing even the physiological aspects of addiction to pornography as I've studied some of that. I'm not minimizing all of that, but I'm just simply saying that's not who you are. And victory starts when you believe that. I am not a lustful person. In Jesus, Jesus is pure, and that's really who I am. That's my identity. I'm pure in Jesus Christ. You know, and I know what you're struggling with, because you're struggling with, hey, preacher, that sounds good on Sunday morning, but what about Monday? Well, the truth is, you're not just in Jesus on Sunday, you're in Jesus all week long, and He's in you. Now, let me do something this morning I hesitate to do because it's a little technical, but I want you to see it in living color. If you don't mind putting a finger in 1st or 2nd Corinthians and going over to Romans chapter number 8, I want us, if I could please, just to briefly read a passage of Scripture in Romans chapter number 8. And what I want us to do as I read it, I want you to notice uh, the prepositions. You say, Preacher, I did not come on Sunday morning to, to, to look for prepositions, okay? Some, how many of you liked English, actually? Anybody like English? Okay, got a few people that are a little different. That's good. Okay, that's California. Okay, but anyway, so here it is. Yeah, no, I actually like English, too. Now, I'm going to tell you who I blame, my sixth grade teacher. My, my first year in Christian school was sixth grade, and I had a teacher who was fresh out of school, had never taught, uh, before just came right out, right out of uh, uh, school, and she thought you taught sixth graders college freshman English. You, the last thing you want is a first year teacher. You know what I'm talking about? They're very idealistic. And you know what she made us do? I'm telling you right now, diagram. Now, I, I just gave some of you nightmares tonight. You know what I'm talking about? Oh, I remember that diagram. And we weren't diagramming simple sentences like Jack hit the ball. <laughs> You know, Jack, then a line like this. Remember that? And, you know, here you got the ball, the, you know, hit, then I'm sorry, you know, then ball. The, the, you know, you, none, none of that stuff. We were doing complex, compound, compound. It was like Ephesians chapter number one. You know what I'm talking about? I mean, these are tough sentences. But I'll tell you what she did. Now when I read the Bible, I, I'm di kind of halfway diagramming it in my brain. I mean, I'm telling you, she, she ruined me. But uh, in fact, I... I don't think I learned any English grammar until I got to college. She taught us all the rest of it. Okay. So, uh, but we're going to do something. We're going to look at prepositions. Because the prepositions here in Romans chapter 8 are reflected in the original. So, I'm just going to emphasize them, and then I'm going to give you an illustration. But we need to see this first. So, Romans chapter 8, let's begin reading in verse number 3. Uh, actually, verse number 4. That the righteousness of the law might be fulfilled in us who walk not after the flesh, but after the Spirit. For they that are after the flesh do mind the things of the flesh, but they that are after the Spirit the things of the Spirit. Verse number 8. So then they that are in, oh, now we've changed, the flesh cannot please God. But you are not in the flesh, but in the Spirit, if so be that the Spirit of God dwell in you. Now, if you'll notice, there were two different prepositions. We started with the preposition after, and we ended with the preposition in. Now, I don't want to be too technical, but after is calling, talking about practical truth. And in is talking about positional truth. Now, one of the problems with positional truth, when we talk about it in theology, we almost think of it as potential. But positional truth is not potential, it's real. 
Now, let me help you out now. A moment ago we read the verse that, that He hath made Him to be sin for us, who knew no sin, that we might be made the righteousness of God in Him. Now, may I say something? That righteousness is legal. Hallelujah. It is forensic. What I mean by that is when I stand at Judgment Day and Jesus looks at me, He will see the righteousness of Jesus Christ. Hallelujah, it's legal, it's forensic. But it is more than that. It is real. Right now. My friend, in Jesus, you are in union with the righteousness of Jesus Christ. It is not that which will help you on Judgment Day, just that. It is that, but it's not just that. It's more than that. It's a righteousness that will help you tomorrow morning, <laughs> and tonight, and the next day. It's real righteousness. So, okay, now how does this work? So, you got positional truth, and then you got the practical reality of the truth. So, so what I want to do is use an analogy. Can we do that? Flesh, I'd like us to, and by the way, this is not original with me. When I was in systematic theology, our professor used this analogy. I've never forgotten it. To help us understand how positional and practical truth go together. And uh, um, so in, uh, or excuse me, uh, flesh, we're going to use the analogy of poverty. And actually flesh is spiritual poverty, isn't it? And then spirit, we're going to use riches. So, we're going to use that analogy. Okay, let's start with position. Let's talk about somebody who is in poverty. Somebody who is in poverty is that's, that's, that's what it is. Uh, let's imagine they live out in the woods in a shack and have newspaper for wallpaper, they dumpster dive for food, they have rags for clothes, they have no money or very little. They are in poverty. Now, if a person who is in poverty, can they, if they want to live after poverty? And the answer is, well, that's all they can do. Can they live after riches? And the answer is, well, no. They can't go and live in a million-dollar house. They can't, they can't buy a nice car. They, they can't, you know, they, they don't have the means to do that. They have one option. They're in poverty. They have to live after poverty. So, one day a well-dressed lawyer comes up to the little shack, knocks on the door, Pulls out a checkbook. This is a dated illustration. I went to seminary in the 80s, okay? Pulls out a checkbook, and, and um, if you're a millennial or a Gen Zer and you don't know what I'm talking about, look for somebody old. They can tell you what a checkbook is, okay? But anyway, and so um, he pulls out a checkbook and he says, Sir, your long lost uncle just died, left you $100 million. And here's the checkbook. That man has moved from being in poverty, if I can put it over here, to being in riches. He's got $100 million. He is in riches. Can he now that he's in riches live, still if he wants to, live after poverty? And the answer is, yeah, he could. He could let that thing gather dust. dust. He could still dumpster dive. He could live in a shack. He could put newspaper. I mean, he could, he could do that. Could he, if he wanted to, live after riches? Yeah, he could. So let's say one day he gets sick of the poverty. So he looks at that checkbook and says, well, just maybe, maybe. So he dusts it off and he writes himself a check for $20. Boy, it'd be nice to get a hot meal at McDonald's. Yeah, $20. A few years ago you had written $10, but now you got to be $20. Okay, but you have the idea. And writes a check for $20. Goes down a little timid to the bank. You know how it is. And he doesn't look very good, doesn't smell very good, but uh, bank teller kind of treats him a little kind of dis disdain. But he, he decides to give it a shot. He goes, could, could, I'd like to withdraw $20. And the guy looks at him like, you don't have a bank account here. 
Imagine he takes the check, he looks up the checking account, all of a sudden his countenance changed. He sees $100 million on the computer. You remember the old 80s computers, you know, black screen, green letters, you know what I'm talking about. 100 million bucks just comes up on there. Wow, yeah. And so he changes his attitude. Yes, sir, yes, sir, $20, that's all you want? Okay, here it is. Oh, I thought that's easy. Goes down to McDonald's, you know, I'm gets himself three Big Macs, you know, a couple of fries. I mean, he porks out, has a wonderful time. You think that was easy. Next day, he decides he wants some clothes. This time, it goes for $500. Same scene, different teller, but the same thing happens. This time, same thing. Got, oh, yes, yes, sir, $500. Hands him five, uh, five crisp $100 bills. Wow, goes down clothing shop, gets himself some clothes. And you can see that escalating, don't you? Pretty soon, he's got himself a nice car. He's got himself a million-dollar house. Now I realize in California that's probably middle class. But anyway, you know what I'm talking about. For us in the upper Midwest, that's a nice house, a million bucks. But anyway, and uh, uh, so uh, you know how it goes. And he just, he starts, I mean, he starts, man, he starts, he's, he's, dri he's driving around in a nice, beautiful car. And he's got himself wonderful clothes. And he stops shopping at Aldi. Now he's shopping down at Whole Foods. You know what I'm talking about. He stops voting for the Democrats. Now he's voting for the Republicans. You know what I'm talking about. <laughs> He's living like a rich guy now. He's going, he's going all out on the thing, okay? And no matter which side of the aisle, there's some humor in that, you understand. Hopefully you understand. I'm not trying to make a political statement. But anyway, uh, yeah, I am telling you, wow, he starts living like a rich man. Now, was he rich the moment he got that checkbook? Yeah, he was. But he continued to walk after poverty, although he was in riches. But when he took the checkbook off, started writing checks, he began to live after the ways of rich people, he began to live like a rich man because he was. Now, don't miss this, friend. Before you and I got saved, guess what? We were in the flesh. Could we, if we wanted to, live after the Spirit? Can lost people live after the Spirit? And the answer is no. You have only one option. You can walk after the flesh. Now, you say, well, I know some really respectable, good people. Well, can I help you out with a verse from the book of Psalms? I believe it is. It says, the plowing of the wicked is, anybody know? Sin. Do you know everything a lost man does is sinful? Why? Because it's tainted by fleshly or sinful desires. Everything, a lost man can do nothing but sin. It may be respectable flesh, but it's still flesh. And so here you are in the flesh. And living, walking after the flesh could be respectable flesh, may not be respectable flesh, whatever, but here you are, walking after the flesh, in the flesh, and all of a sudden one day somebody comes along the way and knocks on your heart door and hands you uh, the great truth of the gospel, and you trust Jesus to save you, and the moment you trust Jesus to save you, guess what? You got regened, you got a new father, you were born again, and you got a checkbook. And many times we take that checkbook, don't we, and we sit it on the shelf. Here we are now, we're in the Spirit over here. We were in the flesh, only one option, walk after the flesh, couldn't walk after the Spirit. Now we're over here, we're in the Spirit. Do you see that? That's our position, that's who we are. But you know, my friends, we get sick. after a while, let's just imagine you get sick of walking after the flesh. You get sick of your defeat. You get sick of your failure. You get sick of the emptiness. And you say, I need Jesus. You pull that checkbook and you start writing checks. The only problem with that analogy is $100 million wouldn't be a good enough thing because Jesus' riches are, how do we say this, inexhaustible. 
We start writing checks. And when we do, friends, we begin to walk after the Spirit. And we begin to live out who we really are. So, friends, you say, okay, preacher, I, I'm beginning to see that, but I know in my own heart and life, I just sometimes sense so, so powerful. It just seems so powerful, this flesh. And it seems like I, I'm just, that's who I am, and I, I can't break out of it. I just struggle with anger, or, or I just struggle with lust, or I struggle with unbelief, or whatever it might be. Okay, you say, just give me one, I want to give you one other thought on this whole thing, because there is a, there, there, there's a very practical side to this. And here's the other side, and that is, you have an enemy, and I have an enemy that hates us. And you know what your enemy is? He's more powerful than you are. Can I say something? He's not more powerful than God. <laughs> you know, many times we almost view the flesh and the spirit as equals. They're not equals. The flesh is no match for the spirit. <laughs> Walk in the Spirit, and ye shall not fulfill the lust of the flesh, Galatians 5.16. But we often think they are. Why do we think they are? Because the flesh seems so powerful. Why? Well, there's several reasons why, but the one I want you to think about right now is because you have an enemy who, don't miss this, he's a master illusionist. Satan has power, but not as much power as you think he has. In fact, in Isaiah, when the Bible says when Satan is thrown into hell, people are going to say this about Satan. Is this the man that made the earth to tremble, that did shake kingdoms? In other words, people are going to say, you've got to be kidding me, that's Satan? <laughs> Why? Because he's a master illusionist. And he knows how to spin around your perimeter. The old timers call it our circumference. But he, begins, he knows how to spin, spin around our perimeter illusion. Deception. Have you ever felt like you just had to look at that dirty website? Have you ever felt like you just had to get angry? Have you ever felt, teenager, like you just had to be disrespectful to mom and dad? Do you ever feel overwhelmed and feel like your only option was sin? Have you ever felt that? We all have. And I'm going to tell you why. Because the illusionist made you think that. <laughs> He's a master illusionist. Now, let me prove it, and I'm going to ask you to be honest. If we can all be honest together, this will be good. Okay, how many in this room, I'm raising my hand, so I'm going to tell you ahead of time, how many in this room have ever gotten, like, discouraged, like, really discouraged? Would you raise your hand? Yeah, okay, thank you very much. If you didn't raise your hand, we could certainly preach on lying tonight. No, I'm just teasing with you, okay, but anyway, okay, yeah, okay, yeah, all of us have been discouraged. Now, I want to ask you a question. What your most discouraged moment in your life was God discouraged about what you were discouraged about? And the answer is, no. Here, here's what we, we would never say this because we don't want to be irreverent, but here's what we would think God is. At that moment's discouraged moment, we feel like God's up in heaven wringing his hands. So, I think this guy's gotten himself too big. I don't think I can fix this guy's problems. Is God doing that? Reminds me of a book I read several years ago. This lady one day came to some people and said, oh, everything's gone awry. Everything's awful. I mean, I, 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 and nothing's going to work. I mean, the only hope I've got left is God. Do you need anything else? <laughs> you know, sometimes God takes everything else, so He's the only option left. 
And I will tell you, friends, in your most discouraged moment, in my most discouraged moment, we almost imagine like God's hopeless. Like, well, this guy's messed up. <laughs> like, I can't fix this guy. <laughs> He's really messed up. No, God's not doing that. Can I say, you know, I'm just going to use my sanctified imagination. Do you know what I believe God is doing at that very moment? Here's what He's doing. He's saying, okay, five years ago, I knew this was going to come, so I got that rolling over here. Three years ago, I got that rolling. A few months ago, got this rolling over here. Got this guy over here. Got this over here. He's got it all figured out. And you know what He's waiting for us to do? Trust Him. But I will tell you, friends, in those most discouraged moments, you know what's so powerful? The enemy is a master illusionist. And particularly, friends, if you have a heart for God and serving the Lord, I mean, He comes after you. I, I would say to any young preacher, just get used to it. When you're in the thick of the battle, Satan makes it worse than it actually is. It's not as bad as it looks, but you feel like it is. The enemy knows, he knows how to exacerbate it. He knows how to, to make it worse than it is. And he tries to make things seem like they're insurmountable. He's an illusionist. So, well, preacher, what does that have to do with this? Well, it has everything to do with it. Because when you and I are in the Spirit, and we feel like we have no other option to walk after the flesh, why? Because the Satan tries to make the flesh seem powerful. He's a liar. He's an illusionist. Now, let me illustrate it this way, and this is not a perfect illustration, but nonetheless, it is an illustration. Some of you will be able to identify with it. How many have ever ride the, ridden the ride soaring over in California Adventure? How many have ever ridden the ride soaring? Okay, it's a, it is a simulation of hang gliding. Now, before I give this illustration, i got to confess a little bit. Uh, every person, they say, has fears. I'm, I'm told that every one of you men in the room has three, four, five, maybe six fears, and I'm told that all you ladies in the room have fears into the double digits. Okay, that's what they say. You know, who's they? I don't know. I'm not. But hey, all of us have fears. And I'm going to give you my number one fear. Okay, I'm just going to be honest with you. My number one fear, heights. I don't like heights. One time in my life, I grew up in Chicago, I went up to the Sears Tower. <laughs> Man, I'm telling you, I, I, I remember that. I walked up, looked down. I thought they're going to have to take me to the funny farm. I'm telling you. I'm holding on the elevator saying, when can we go down? <laughs> I'll, I just won't go up in tall buildings. I, I don't even like the upper deck at a baseball game. I, I just don't like heights. I, it, it, there's one picture, you see it everywhere, that absolutely gives me the heebie-jeebies. I'm not sure what that means, but anyway, it gives me the heebie-jeebies. You say, what's that? Have you ever seen the Empire State Building when they are uh, making that and they have a bunch of those immigrants sitting out eating lunch on one of those I-beams sticking out over nothing? Brother, I think I'd commit suicide before you put me on an I-beam like that to eat lunch. I just couldn't do it. I, I just do not like heights at all. So you say, why are you talking about soaring? Because that's a simulation of heights. Well, my wife loves that ride. She absolutely loves that ride. And so I've been on it with her many times. And actually, I like the ride too. But there's something I have to do on that ride to enjoy it. You say, preacher, what's that? I have to, let me use a, a Romans 6 word, I have to reckon. Say, what are you talking about? Okay, most of you know a little bit about what it is, big huge screen, you know, kind of con convex or whatever those things are, big huge screen. And of course they take the, 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 I think there's 10 in a row, and you get put up right in there, you know, and, and it all, you all kind of look like you're in the center there. And, and uh, they, of course, they tilt, uh, tilt the things to make you feel like you're going to fall out. Remember that? Yeah, they tilt the thing. Of course you belt it in. They blow wind at you, and then of course many of you know they have scents. They come over the pine forest and you smell the pine needles. You know what I'm talking about. And uh, I think the, when the killer whale comes out and goes in, you have water splashing your face. Very immersive. You, those of you who've done it know what I'm talking about. It's very sensory, okay? Very convincing, could I put it that way? 
Okay, so here's what I do when I ride soaring. Okay, there's that one scene when they used to have the soaring over California. You have the skiers coming down the slopes. How many know what I'm talking about? Yeah, the skiers coming down the slopes. And then you go over that mountain, and it's like 2,000 feet to the canyon floor. And every single time, my stomach comes up to my throat. And I start white-knuckling. You know what white-knuckling is? Yeah. I'm, I'm pretty sure, convinced I'm going to fall out to my death. You know what I'm talking about? And, and then at that moment, here's what I do. I have to reckon. You know what I do? I say, I'm not thousands of feet above the floor. I'm 20 feet above the floor. And if I fell out, I'd break my ankle and I could sue that company for millions of bucks, okay? What's, that's not a bad deal. <laughs> you know what I'm doing? Don't miss this. I'm rejecting the illusion and I'm embracing reality. Friends, I want to tell you when you're under temptation, you've got to reject the illusion. Can I say this? You're not a pornographic addict. You're not an angry man. That's not who you really are. Oh, don't get me wrong. Your flesh and even your physical body has certainly been trained that way. But there's something more powerful than that. And that is who you are in Jesus Christ. See, old things have passed away. Behold, all things. Did you catch that? All things are become new. That's what the Bible says is reality. That's the truth. The other is the illusion. <laughs> yeah. Oh, how do you say, oh, you always triumph. And where's the triumph? Not in myself, not in my self-effort, not in gritting my teeth, not in my fleshly effort. It is in Christ. That's where the victory is. It's already been won. I try in praying never to ask for victory. I try to, to ask, Lord, manifest the victory that is already there. Because if you're praying for victory, you're praying in unbelief because God says you already, you always triumph in Christ. It just needs to be manifested. That's who you are. You're always triumphant in Jesus. Old things are passed away. All things have become new in Jesus. You have been made righteous, not just legally, but in reality in Jesus. And the list could go on. You're dead to sin in Jesus. You're alive unto God in Jesus. You're seated at the right hand. Woo, that's a big one. Far above all principality and power in Jesus. You are complete in Jesus. You are filled in Jesus. I'm telling you, friends, you got everything you needed the moment you got saved. He that spared not his own son, but delivered him up for us all, how shall he not with him freely give us? Does anybody know the last two words of that verse in Romans 8? All things. There are no second class citizens in this room. There's no second class Christians. Every one of you that's saved has everything you need to live the Christian life in Jesus. There aren't the have and the have nots. We're all the haves. I put it this way, sometimes it's the accessing and the accessing knots. <laughs> we all got it. Just some people are going to the bank a little bit more. <laughs> and they're drawn the reality of who they are in Jesus Christ. You know my burden for every Christian in this room, walk out of here and recognize that's who you are. It is not do and you will be, it's because you are do. And when you get a hold of who you are, you want to live out who you are. You want to live out the old things are passed away life. You want to live out the righteous life. You want to live out the always triumph life. Do you get that? You don't want to live out a fleshly life. You don't want to live out a life that compromises and looks at things on YouTube you shouldn't. You don't want to live out a life of a Christian who's got a compromised testimony. You want to live out who you are in Jesus Christ, but you're not doing it to become something. You're doing it because you are. 
That's who you are in Jesus Christ. And tonight, friend, or this morning, my burden for each of us is to just reject the illusion and embrace reality. Thank you for listening to Messages from Liberty. Tune in next week for more Bible teaching or subscribe on iTunes to stay up to date with our current series.